0: Welcome back to the Reggie and Royal Podcast, as we left Episode 5, Never Say Never, Cryptocurrency Reversals, Part 2, we had our second sample of the latest, big names in finance, each of whom have gone from total skeptics of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, or, from positions of total condemnation, into, reversing, into totally committed, and, now, for some, significantly invested, to the cryptocurrency spaces. These momentum shifts have begun to put any remaining skepticisms by lesser-known players completely to rest. Due to the need to shorten that original podcast in Episode 3, we eventually led to a sequel to Never Say Never, Part 2, as that chorus of previous naysayers to present-day converters continue to grow. Even since our Episode 5, other big-name institutions have made major announcements. By the way, if you are enjoying the podcasts, don't forget to smash the like button, and, subscribe to our channel. This sixth episode is all about how the major global central bank's dilemma sequel, particularly the Federal Reserve, which in concert with the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, have painted themselves into the proverbial corner over the past 20 years. Their habitual focus on using temporary stimulus to maintain the appearances of the so-called wealth effect, was assumed with all with good intentions. The same steps that began as a process to secure the financial markets from pending calamities, like treating a patient in an intensive care unit, have all matured and, evolved into a a different exercise. This is now the care and feeding of a patient that might never again leave the critical care unit and thrive on its own. The markets are now under perpetual care. The consequences of these changes only postpones, and, in some cases, will intensify the future outcomes and events. We must all prepare for this inevitable instability, and, all of its major distortions upon our financial lives. In the episode 4, part 1, to this episode 6, we had discussed the following. Bank of Japan Balance Sheet and Asset Growth Total assets held by the Bank of Japan, rose to 735.8 trillion yen, or, 5.824 trillion US dollars, as of April 14, 2022, that bank's data showed very recently, more than quadrupling in the eight years under Governor Haruhiko Kuroda's aggressive monetary easing, and, growing to 1.3 times the size of the Japan's economy. This is more than double the size of the European Central Bank balance sheet, which is at 53% of the GDP of the Eurozone. In December of 2020, the Bank of Japan took over as the biggest owner of the nation's stocks. Massive exchange-traded fund purchases by the Bank of Japan, to support the market amid the pandemic last year, combined with additional valuation gains, pushed its Japanese equity portfolio to 45.1 trillion yen, or, 434 billion US dollars in November, according to estimates by Shingo Goide, chief equity strategist at NLI Research Institute. This represents a tenfold increase in under 6 years. About 3 years ago, Japan's central bank became the first among G7 nations to own assets collectively worth more than the country's entire economy, following a half-decade spending spree designed to accelerate weak price growth. The Bank of Japan has thus become the world's second central bank after the Swiss National Bank, and the first among group of seven countries to own a pool of assets larger than the economy within which it is trying to stimulate. ECB and Fed growth, since Q1 of 2020, the balance sheet of the European Central Bank has exploded from under 5 trillion euros, to nearly 9 trillion euros, now at 8.7 trillion euros, as of April 14, 2022. This is the equivalent of 9.406 trillion US dollars. The combined growth for the ECB and the Fed was 7 trillion U.S. dollars, in about a year and a half. This is more than was added in the previous decade. Total Central Bank Asset Purchases In the period from 2009, to projections through 2022, global central bank assets have increased from 5 trillion, to 30 trillion U.S. dollars, or, a 500% increase. Annual flow was a steady 1 trillion to 2 trillion U.S. dollars per year at least before the pandemic panic burst for the year 2020, when an annual rate of $8 trillion US dollars were briefly added, before returning to the pre-pandemic level. For a brief period at the height of the pandemic in 2020, the annual percent change in all major central bank assets approached 60%, the bulk of which was the Federal Reserve's nearly 80% rate. This combined annual rate has now retreated to a seemingly reasonable 5%. Keep in mind that even the current rate of annual growth would double the asset base in under 15 years. Only the Bank of Japan has an annual rate of growth that is back under zero. Back to the U.S., and, the Fed, coinciding with a $1 trillion liquidity injection since June, and, suddenly the S&P made a new all-time highs right into the first week of this year. The U.S. Central Bank's balance sheet was 35% of nominal GDP as of February, up from 19% before the COVID-19 pandemic according to the New York Fed, for reference, compared to the three years that it took for the ECB and Fed to expand their combined balance sheets by $1 trillion in the period between January 2009 and December 2011, immediately following the Great Financial Crisis, they've now accomplished that same $1 trillion in only three months. After hints throughout the year from Fed Chairman Powell, on the potential schedule for tapering, markets could not avoid a trend break, once the impact of the more direct tapering changes factored in during November. Reflecting the market tendencies of monthly interactions, with its short term moving averages. These are where all of investor rewards and investor risks resonate. ECB monetary policy changes in September and since, so, while the Fed had signaled towards September for an opening into its tapering, or, balance sheet reduction dialogue, the European Central Bank kept its monetary policy unchanged in early September. It chose to slow down the net asset purchases pace under its pandemic emergency purchase program. In mid April, The ECB finally announced an end to its bond buying program by the end of the third quarter. Once the bond buying program is completed, the ECB has already announced its plan to begin hiking interest rates in the fall, following the same path as the Bank of England and the US Federal Reserve. And, all along, we've had multiple Fed speakers leave the door open to taper delay, due to the fluctuating jobs numbers. More flip-flopping, more hedging.inflation threats? Yet, all this inflation is the crux of it all. I think they can't afford another hot print, be it PPI or CPI. Not only will they look like fools, but markets will freak out at the thought of the Fed losing control. Our sense is they could afford to print in perpetuity during the last cycle because they sense no inflation. But now that there is inflation, and the societal impacts are dramatic, so before we know it, the Fed may find itself at the center of a political firestorm of which they would rather not be a part of. The shock of the sanctions on Russian oil. Following the February 24th invasion of Ukraine resulted in a 35% spike in March oil prices compared to February. The result was a 30% premium on March inflation figures that should not have been in the picture. In the absence of those oil and inflation spikes. nearly all of the recent talk on inflation ignores some very important and pertinent history. fact. Every recession, as we most certainly experienced in 2020, by the strictest of measures, creates an aftershock of inflation. Normally within 6-12 to 12 months. Hence, this current inflation is just a predictable event, just like a rifle recoil, right on schedule as it's connected with the recession that triggered it. Be careful attempting to use current inflation as a predictor. It doesn't quite work that way. Inflation is always and everywhere a lagging indicator, and the bond market is sophisticated enough to realize that, the year-over-year core inflation rate peaked at 2.5% in August 2008. Fully eight months after the recession began. It peaked at 2.8% in December 2001, and that was also nine months after the onset of recession. It peaked in February 1991 at 5.7%, and that was seven months after the downturn started. It peaked in September 1981 at 11.8%, and that time, there was a two month lag. Finally, in June 1980, it peaked at 13.6%, which was six months into the recession. So the really big story here is that inflation lags the cycle, and, that the bond market will respond more to what is happening in the real economy, this year's response being a classic case in point. Note as well how in each cycle, at least prior to this current cycle, the peak in core inflation is getting lower and lower, hence so are the peaks in bond yields. And, since the peak in core inflation this cycle was greater than 2.5%, it continues as has happened in each case since 1960. Inflation's lag also helps to explain why the Fed is so chronically reactive to the business cycle, rather than proactive. They are essentially waiting for lagging data to decide whether their policy approach is correct or not. At this juncture, a good question to ask is this, has core inflation already peaked, or, is the Fed behind the curve again, in stopping out of control inflation? The bond market, as usual, has this one right, and amazingly so, does the Fed. Given the lack of impact of credit creation, outside a few asset sectors, moderate new money creation, high output gap, higher than average unemployment, low wage growth over the long term, low unit labor costs, and, just generally stagnant economic environment, I find it difficult to conclude that inflation, is becoming a serious problem, that policymakers need to respond to immediately.Inflation is, and, always will be, everywhere, and, anytime, a lagging, economic, indicator, March 2020 Fed Panic Attack. So, some still believe that the coronavirus was the economic trigger last year? Don't fall for it. This market sell-off of 2020 was not just about the virus-slash-epidemic-slash-pandemic threat. The seeds for this correction were sown with the succession of signals, from overvaluation, bond market inversion, Fed overnight repo stimulation since September, global stock-slash-bond market signals, manufacturing sector recession, other recessionary signals combination. These signals began nearly two years ago. The virus is a catalyst, not a cause. It was the match, not the entire pile. So, let's back up to March 2020. Backdrop, 24 months ago, nothing spoke more to panic, more than a gamble of doubling down after a losing trade. And that's what the Fed was doing at that point in time. After seeing the Fed's emergency rate cut of 50 basis points, going over like a lead balloon, and, every other central bank emergency action fail think of the Bank of England's 50 basis points emergency rate cuts and a near-simultaneous, failed ECB additions of K and liquidity, the Fed felt forced to launch their biggest bazookas yet dollar $1.5 trillion in liquidity injections for two days in a row in mid-March 2020, and, at least $500 billion in repos scheduled into the following week, March 2020 equity losses, and no wonder. Global markets were crashing. Looking no further than the UK's dollar footsie, Which crashed to its 2012 lows of eight years earlier. The broader US dollar NYSE crashed all the way below the US election lows of 2016. That was truly panic time at the Fed, where Fed Chairman Powell said that, quote, the economy is in a good place, unquote, just three weeks earlier, and, where he also said, there was no need for rate cuts, and, that they were planning to taper their temporary repos in March. On that fateful day in mid February, Hank Powell said that the economy was, quote, in a good place unquote. Meanwhile, he later said, on the same day, that, nothing about this expansion is sustainable. If he was that confused in good times, what will happen during the next panic? The second they did that, everything fell apart. Blame the virus if it makes them feel better, but the fact is that the excess of the last few years is becoming unwound, a global reset was in the cards. TikTok, Jay Powell. You've now realized that you have run out of time. The financial damage that had unfolded in that quarter is so broad, So deep, that it may have been already be too great to reverse. And we think they knew that. Hence, two years ago, they acted, on just one day, to the tune of $700 billion in repo, and, another $700 billion, the very next day. But, the markets were saying, it's not working. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 2,000 points in spite of the $1.5 trillion liquidity announcement. That stimulus was of a kind directly related to responding to the panic of the pandemic effects. On the financial markets, pandemic. What about the weaknesses that were showing up like red flashing railroad crossing barriers months and months before? Well, there it was, and we were staring at a hapless Fed, desperate to keep the wheels from falling off, straight in the face. Only three weeks after claiming everything was fine and dandy, so at that point the markets crashed, the wheels came off, and the Fed succumbed to having a panic attack. And, it is again, right now, and this time it could be scary. Just as before. Central bankers have to prove that they can keep the lid on things and not lose control, and, so far they are all flailing badly. The Fed for years has claimed it doesn't target asset prices. That doesn't sound accurate. Why? Because they always magically show up at precisely the right time when things look to break down. There's simply too much history there in the financial charts and correlated Fed action. And, sometimes, the Fed's panic may itself lead to a broader panic. If markets perceive central banks to lose control, then nothing else is left to stop the runaway train. Yes, we've had massive corrections, and crashes 26 months ago, and 45 months ago. Even after those two points, markets were still highly valued relative to GDP. The Buffett indicator is the percentage of total market cap, or DMC, relative to the US GDP, is known as probably the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment. In February 20, that figure reached 158%, a figure that was warned about. At the end of September 18, the figure had reached 145.8%. So, what's that level right now? It's 184.1% exclamation mark that's 16% higher than the highest of the two levels, in February 20, at the end of the business cycle, and, before pandemic impacts, and, 26.2% above the pre-fed tapering high in September 18 highs. based upon the historical ratio of newly introduced total market cap over GDP plus total asset of Federal Reserve banks the stock market is significantly overvalued, and it is likely to return 0.7% a year from this level of valuation, including dividends, over the next decade. Every time this indicator has exceeded into the extremely overvalued range of 14% in the past five years, there have been downside consequences in the near term. Now, add the tapering plans to this, and, you now have a virtual guarantee of an unexpected, crash type environment. Please take note, when the Fed attempted full tapering during the fourth quarter of 2018, it resulted in a 25% plunge in markets in the U.S., and, even further in some other global markets, before the capitulation that began on Christmas Eve of that year. Within one month of the bottom of the equity market, the Fed chief was already making a quick U turn away from tapering, and, back on the road to stimulus. We are right back in that position, before the plunge, at the present time. The Federal Open Market Committee informally agreed to lower its $8.9 trillion in holdings by a maximum of $60 billion in treasuries and $35 billion in mortgage-backed securities each month. The securities won't be sold but instead will be allowed to roll off, holdings will decline as principal payments come in unless is reinvested. However, FOMC members announced consideration for outright sales of agency mortgage-backed securities, once the balance sheet runoff begins. They represent 32%, or $2.7 trillion, of the total portfolio. Previously, at least some Fed governors indicated preferences for reducing their positions in mortgage-backed securities, first, to minimize the effect of balance sheet holdings, on the allocation of credit across economic sectors. This cap of 95 billion dollars monthly exceeds the pace originally set when the Fed tried a course of tapering from 2017 to 2019. At that point, the Fed managed to reduce the balance sheet downward to 3.8 trillion dollars. However, they had to resume their buying within 6 months. When COVID-19 tore through the United States, unfortunately, no central bank has ever been able to engage in campaign of successful sustained tapering. You've been warned exclamation mark and repetitious conditions like these continue to be the greatest risk ever since. Central banks have been continuously out of ammunition, and, continuously with their backs against the wall. Only by breaking already extreme levels of direct stimulus, were they able to avoid the impacts of the business cycle turn on the equity markets, at least, from early 20 to early 21. They couldn't in 2000 or in 2007, because, they actually exercised more restraint than they've exercised, during this end-of-business-slash-COVID-19-impacted period. August, 2019, numerous recession signals, since 1967, each time the probability of recession signal reached 30%, a recession was on the horizon, and, did actually occur within 12 months. In other words, there were no false signals, as is the case on isolated occasions. In late August of 2019, the signal was now at 31.48% this practically guaranteed a recession within 12 months. Far away from the myth of the COVID-generated recession, way back then, the U.S. bond market flashed what could be its biggest warning yet of a coming recession, and it is not alone the flipping occurred, of the spread between the two-year Treasury yield, and, the 10-year yield, with the two-year higher than the benchmark 10-year yield, for the first time since June 2007. Other parts of the curve had already inverted, Traditionally the 2-year to 10-year spread, is the most widely watched by market At one point, the US 30-year bond yield fell to a record low, touching 2.015% for the first time ever, dropping through its prior record of 2.08%. Yields throughout Europe fell, and the German 10-year bond, touched a new low of negative 0.65%. The long end of the curve, or the 10-year and 30-year yields, were reflecting fears about the global economy, so therefore rates have been declining. However, the shorter end, the two-year, had not been declining as quickly, since it's a reflection of the Fed Fund's rate, which was still above 2 percent. An inverted yield curve has been a very, reliable recession indicator. However, it does not always precede an economic contraction. The length of time before a recession occurs has varied. According to Credit Suisse, since the late 1990s, the average length of time for a recession to occur after inversion, was 22 months. The bond market was screaming recession. National Alliance's Andrew Brenner said, Just take a look at what the U.S. market is doing, he continued, As I look at the European curve, you're at record lows across the board. I think the key things today were Germany did show a contraction in their GDP, and the Chinese numbers were weaker. German GDP actually contracted by 0.1% in the second quarter, as exports fell, and, Chinese industrial output growth slowed to 4.8% in July, a 17-year low. Both were impacted by trade wars.Home prices were rising at the slowest pace since 2012. According to the Chase-Shiller Index, the rise in the cost of buying a house in the U.S. had continued to slow in June 2019. A key price barometer showed.The S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller 20 City Price Index was flat that month, after seasonal adjustments. The increase in the index over the prior 12 months, what's more, tapered off to 2.1% from 2.4%. Marking the slowest rise in seven years. Just one year before, housing prices were rising three times faster, 6.3%. By September, the manufacturing sector index dropped below 50, a sign of contraction, towards recession. It should have been a reminder to those who fail to recognize the links to the global economy. Until that month, only the U.S., Canada and India were above 50.0, but, still flat, neither expanding nor contracting, while Brazil, China, Japan, Russia, UK, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, officially in recession, below 45, the Eurozone, and Mexico were already under 50.0. Also, that year, alliance partners Maersk and MSC was forced to temporarily suspend their AE2Swan Asia North Europe loop from the end of April until mid November, removing up to 20,000 20 foot equivalent units, for, TEO. A week from the trade. Weakening demand and plummeting freight rates had thus far obliged Asia North Europe carriers to blank two-thirds more sailings than during the same period of last year, with the 2M alliance suspending the loop for the second consecutive year. Moreover, Maersk said it would also balance its network to match reduced market demand for the upcoming Chinese factory shutdown for Golden Week and withdraw its AE7, MSC's Condor, head-haul string in week 41 thus removing around, another 17,020-foot equivalent units, TAO, of capacity from the market that MSC said the AE2-Swan suspension would help us to match capacity with the expected weaker demand for shipping services, and in a customer advisory, Maersk said the service would resume in line with demand pickup, suggesting that the suspension could be extended if demand on the route continued to be soft. This same strategy had been used from September to December of 2018. Due to slackening demand. What happened during the previous 18 months? Prior to that, obviously necessary COVID-19 reaction, fueling billions of dollars per day in stimulus. How does that period in the fall of 2018 parallel the current period? What projections can we now make with strong credibility, based upon the dynamics of three and a half years ago? As we jumped from three twelfths years ago, for parallels to our current period, we are now seeing inflation at levels not seen in a decade's. But. Keep the right perspective on current inflation. Inflation does not project forward, as so many are prone to do erroneously. Please note, our current, fast trend in inflation, upward, for one year, comes after 39 years of slow trends upward, and is just a one year aberration from 39 years of normal, downward trends. Bond markets have made over a dozen new lows since the mid 90s, always at points of general economic weakness, just as in the 2020 recession lows the probability of new lows in the near future aren't to be dismissed. We are in another period of negative real treasury rates, which is bond rates minus the inflation rate. In over 100 years, there have been only two periods where a negative real treasury rate combined with the total debt to gdp exceeded 250%. Now, at 393.5% and during the great depression at 256.9% these are points where the disincentive of low capital investment stalls growth. Also, considered the current inflation accelerations for shelter, 5% in March, versus, 4.7% in February, and, new vehicles, 12.5% in March, versus, 12.4% in February, but, eased for used cars, and, used trucks, 35.3% in March, versus, in February. The topic of monetary policy tightening has returned to the agenda. The Fed in the USA has started to reduce securities purchases, a process known as tapering. Key interest rates have been increased in several emerging markets as well as New Zealand, South Korea, Norway, and New Zealand. On the other hand, the European Central Bank (ECB) is cautious and hesitant. The inflation we got wasn't at all what we were looking for. Jay Powell, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair stated in a press conference after the Fed's Monetary Policy Committee accelerated the tapering of its bond purchases to zero by February 2022. He suggested that the Fed will soon begin to raise its policy interest rate, the Fed funds rate, from zero. What did Powell mean by not the inflation? The accumulated rise of prices as a whole, as in, a rise in petroleum prices, eventually leads to an increase in salaries, and, then the rise of other costs. Inflation is a decrease in the value of money as it requires larger amounts to buy certain items. Corporate-driven policies aim to reduce inflation. What were you looking for? He was not referring to the inflation rate. The Fed, or, Federal Reserve, is much higher now than the headline inflation in U.S. consumer goods and services forecast back in September at its meeting. Core inflation, excludes food and energy prices that are rapidly rising. The March headline inflation rate was 6.5%. Which is the highest level in nearly 40 years. By March, that rate was up to 8.5%. This 2% increase in the CPI was still slightly below expectations, and was less significant from February, when the volatile components of food and energy were removed. Without a doubt, this March number was significantly influenced by the 30% jump in March oil prices, resulting directly from the February 24 Russian invasion of Ukraine. In early March, The United States confirmed that it was in talks with European allies to potentially sanction Russian crude oil in response to Moscow's ongoing aggression in Ukraine, sending oil prices briefly above $130. In a February 24 White House press conference, President Biden recapped existing sanctions and announced new ones. The sanctions are purposefully designed, Biden said, to maximize the long-term pain inflicted on Russia, while minimizing the pain felt by American consumers. And it's not just the United States. President Biden said he met with the G7 leaders earlier, the members of which are in full and total agreement. We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen to limit Russia's ability to be part of the global economy. J. Powell also spoke of the causes behind that inflation rate. The Fed seems to no longer view the increase in inflation as transitory. However, its median forecast for personal consumption inflation, or PCE, is for it to end at 5.3% in 2021 and then fall back to 2.6% by 2022 before eventually falling to 2.1% in 2024. The Fed continues to waffle on inflation transitory versus persistent, but in the short term it will be more than previously believed. Powell believes that the unexpected type of inflation is caused by the unusual circumstances of the pandemic. According to mainstream theory, A normal rise in inflation would result from too much money being injected into banks or the result of tight labor markets, i.e. low unemployment, and strong consumer demand as an economy expands. Powell says that this is what is happening. However, there is the added factor of the pandemic, these problems are larger and more long-lasting than expected, exacerbated with waves of the virus. The pandemic has made inflation worse due to 1. pent-up consumer demand, as people use up savings from lockdowns, and 2. Supply bottlenecks that arise in trying to meet this demand. These bottlenecks are caused by restrictions on international transport of goods, or components, and ongoing supply restrictions, since much of the world still suffers from the pandemic. The Fed is now in a difficult situation. What if the Fed tightens monetary policy too much, and raises interest rates? The nominal interest rate, reduced by the inflation rate, is the real rate. If it happens too quickly, it can cause the cost to borrow money to invest, or To spend, to increase to the point that new technology investment slows down, and consumer demand for products, to plummet. This could lead to an economic slump. This is especially true given the record breaking corporate debt. It could also be that high inflation is not transitory if the Fed does not act to decrease and stop its monetary infusions and raise rates. This is why the Fed is seeking a middle road. This is true for the Bank of England, as well as the European Central Bank. Inflation rates in the UK. And, Eurozone have also reached new heights. The Bank of England responded with a slightly different approach. The Bank of England, or, B of E, raised its policy rate by 0.25%, but did not decrease its bond. The Fed is less concerned about stagflation, while the B of E is. Because of Brexit's impact on import prices and the loss in labour due to European Union migrants returning to Europe, the inflation rate could remain higher for longer in Britain. The UK's economy is already slowing down even before Omicron bites. the European Central Bank is staying more dovish, because inflation has risen less than in the US, or, the UK, and, economic recovery has been slower. The pandemics in Europe are also spreading quickly. The ECB did not raise rates during its meeting, and instead slightly rejigged the bond purchases. Gay is still in place in Eurozone rate increases are often extended well into 2023. My view is that the central banks are faced with a dilemma between controlling inflation and avoiding a slump. Study after study shows that central banks have not increased inflation, through monetary policy over the past 20 years. Whether the Fed, BOE, or ECB tighten monetary policy won't help curb inflation. Monetary policy doesn't work, at least not at the interest rates central banks want. If the Fed was to use interest rates that produce a high positive real rate, as in, after inflation, like what Volcker, the former Fed chair did to end high inflation rates in the 1970s, it might work. In late 1980, the federal funds rate soared to a record 20%, while inflation reached 11.6% in March. Volcker discovered that it took many years to reduce inflation, and only after the worst economic recession since World War II, in 1980-82 there has not been recent wage push inflation. In fact, the real weekly wage has risen 0.4% per year over the past 20 years, which is less than the average annual real GDP growth of approximately 2%. And, there is no evidence that GDP growth will lead to higher profits. Marx claimed that rising wages will not cause price increases but rather a drop in profits. This is why mainstream economics obsesses so much about wage push inflation. If there is going to be any cost push this year, it's going to come from companies hiking prices as the cost of raw materials, commodities. Other inputs also rise partly because of the COVID supply chain disruption. According to the Financial Times, price increases have emerged as a dominant theme, in the U.S.'s quarterly earnings season that began in this month. In earnings calls recently, executives at Coca-Cola and Chipotle, as well as appliance maker Whirlpool, and, household brand giants Procter & Gamble, revealed to analysts that they are preparing to increase prices in order to offset rising input costs, especially if commodities.It is possible that inflation driven by demand has subsided. With COVID funds exhausted, it seems that U.S. consumers are joining the rest of the world in retrenching. Meanwhile, container vessels still queue outside ports to unload and load. The system is still subject to supply bottlenecks and gaming. It is obvious that pipeline inflation, and, factory gate inflation, are both evident. The UK and the US both had record breaking or close to record producer prices. If pipeline inflation is not met by demand, its profit margins that are affected by the recession will suffer. And this is what is happening right now. It could get worse before the end of the year. The Omicron and Delta versions of COVID have an impacts on the production of goods and services. Recent producer manufacturers indexes the December economic activity surveys. Show a marked slowdown in recovery from the pandemic slump. Then, measures in the UK and Eurozone were at their lowest level for nine months. The conflict in Ukraine casts a stagflationary cloud over the global economy, and poses a dilemma to central banks, should they support stagnant growth or combat skyrocketing inflation? The war has increased the uncertainty for central bankers, who are already struggling with forecasting when the surging inflation would be under control. They are trying to limit price rises, without causing a panic. They run the risk of having their economies squeezed, and, driving up unemployment, in order to keep inflation under control. Why is it so difficult for central banks to do their jobs? Common belief is that central banks are imbeciles. These people believe central banks should maintain interest rates, at historical norms. Because historical norms are not relevant, this is incorrect. This raises the questions of why, and, what it means for our economies. This issue was highlighted by a paper, written by Ludwig Straub. Atif Mian, and, Amir Sufi, on the 27th of August, at Jackson Hole's Monetary Conference. The conclusion is the same as their earlier work, the main explanation for the fall in real interest rates, was high in rising inequality, not demographic factors such as the savings behavior of a baby boom generation, over their lifetimes. This analysis begins with estimates of the natural rate, or, real interest. The concept dates back to Knut Wicksell, a Swedish economist. He explained that the natural rate balances supply, and, demand in an economy. This results in stable prices. This idea is what has led to the modern doctrine of inflation targeting. Importantly, however, the U.S. estimates of this rate, show that it has fallen, from around 4% four decades ago, to about zero today. As one would expect, this decline is also seen in high-income countries. In an open-world economy, equilibrium real interest rates should converge. The paper notes that the decline raises concerns about secular stagnation, and, threatens asset bubbles. It also complicates monetary policies. It is indeed a major reason central banks have needed to make large asset purchases, in times of crisis, such as right now. The main message is that savings rates are more affected by income, than they are across age cohorts. These differences are huge in America, the top 10% of households by income, have a savings ratio between 10% and 20% higher than the bottom 90%. This divergence explains why the overall propensity for saving increased, with the shift in income distribution towards the top. The explanation for rising saving, and, falling real interest rates, is not the shift of the baby boom generation, to middle age. This is because the effects of demographic shifts on savings behavior have not been felt. In our next podcast, we'll look at the numerous highlights from the recent Bitcoin 2022 conference, which was held in April 6th through 9th in Miami. Such notable addressees were PayPal and Palantir co-founder Peter Thiel, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor, ARK CEO Kathy Wood, and Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, so be sure to catch us next time, for If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to smash the like button, and, subscribe to our channel. Until next time, let's, stay, busy.